All right, last week I did something different and I sat down. And this week I want to do something a little different too. I want you to ask, I want to ask for one or two word answers, okay? Don't get carried away. And what are some adjectives, here's the question, to describe what your understanding is of what it means to be a, a real man or a real woman, what they should be like, okay? I just want, I just want you just to just speak it out, okay? One or two adjectives describe what you think a real man or a real woman should be, okay? I mean, integrity for a man, okay? Go ahead. What's that? Gender? Quiet and gentle for, for a woman. Okay? Anybody else? A servant for both? Or just a woman? Man? Okay, good, good. Yes. Truthful for male, female, for both. Okay? How about some specifically differences? Hey, masculine and feminine, what are some descriptions? Describe that, though. What would that masculinity be like? Constancy for a man? Okay. Trust for? For each other? Okay, good. Sensitivity for the woman. Jim. Aggressive for? Aggressive for the man. Okay, good. And for the woman. Okay. All right. Now, we better cut this off. Again, women, are, women in our culture are defined by beauty, and, uh, you know, it's very external. Uh, you know, for some, a superwoman juggling home and, and family. It was interesting because at Stony Brook, there was, a, there was an exhibit, an art exhibit on uh, women. It's called apparently Women's History Month. And, and they, in this article in Newsday, was pointing out how for most men who drew, the women were primarily sexual objects, nude pictures, etc. And the women's drawings of women were totally different. And uh, it was a inter very interesting article called Battle of the Sexes. But but uh, we have to understand, as we talk about what is a real man or what is a real woman, what that person should look like, that we are very biased, and we're biased by our cultures, and we have many different cultures here. I mean, some of us come from Asian nations, China, uh, you know, Philippines, uh, India, you know, others, we have African-American families, Hispanic, uh, Greeks, Italians, uh, uh, Palestinian, Jewish, and so we, we got to understand we all bring that cultural bias to the table. And we have to acknowledge that. And in fact, in, in a time, you saw the video, the movie uh, Sense and Sensibility. And uh, it was so interesting about that movie was the role of women in 19th century England. And it's just so shocking the way women couldn't work, couldn't vote, and therefore you just basically had to get married. And, and your husband, father had to arrange that. And just how life was just so different. And, and you sort of imagine coming to this theme if you were living in 19th century England. That, that, that bias would really affect the way we, we approach it. And so in the days of Jesus, uh, Jewish men used to pray this every morning, and uh, God, I thank you, I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And so you understand, they had a certain bias as they approached the whole theme, and that's the background of the New Testament as it was written. And, and so a divorce for a Jewish man, and remember, Jesus was Jewish, the early church was all Jewish, and uh, the, the, the person could, a man could divorce a woman for virtually anything, and, and that's such power, and a woman could not divorce a man, and, and virtually for any offense, a man could get out of the marriage and marry somebody else. And, and then in, in the Romans and the Greeks, uh, their view of women was very, very shaky too. I mean, they had concubines, were very common. A wife's role was to bear legitimate children and to keep house. But on top of that, I mean, basically, uh, you know, a man had freedom with concubines, and prostitution was rampant, male prostitution, female prostitution, uh, uh, perversion, sexual abuse of children, promiscuity. I mean, it was, the Roman Empire was, was rampant with all kinds of uh, distortions of sexuality and, and male and female roles. So, 
So in just in saying that, it's just important to understand that we come from a certain place, 1997, United States of America. But I want to build on two foundational truths before I kind of go into this theme in detail, okay? And they're, they're, they're foundational, and they have to be laid before I go into the theme. The first is what I'm going to simply call mystery. When we talk about gender, male and female, we have to, uh, we have to accept, we have to acknowledge there's a degree of mystery when it comes to this whole theme of what exactly is a real man? What exactly is a, a real female? And, and it's very hard for us because most of us don't like mystery. We want it clear. We want, in fact, we want the whole Christian life clear. We want God to make everything clear because if it's clear, and I know it's four steps to this and five steps to this and three ingredients to a happy marriage and, and uh, mystery, if, if there's no mystery, I can control this thing. But see, when there's mystery, it requires a relationship with a person. Mystery requires connection. I want to read you a quote by um, uh, Larry Crabb, an excellent quote. He says this, Our culture rebels against the idea that some problems are beyond understanding. The modern seminar industry is built on that rebellion. Six steps to this, the secret of that, guaranteed principles to help you achieve what you want. We're working feverishly to abolish mystery from culture. Getting past our demand for explanation and accepting mystery is no small achievement. And especially, you understand, in our culture, getting past the demand for we want, we want an explanation for everything. We want it so clear that we will accept nothing less if we have to make it up. But we don't want mystery. And so the two extremes is when we get to this topic of what a female role or what a male role is, is generally people draw up lists. This is the male role, one, two, three, 34 top things, and this is the female role. Your female role is 45, and, and so there's no mystery. Everything's clearly explained. This is it, and we love that because then I don't have to think. I don't have to wrestle. There's no mystery. I don't have to trust and connect with God and his person. I can just simply follow a system. Are you following me, everybody? And it comes the other extreme is that there's, there's a radical equality, and it doesn't allow for any differences, and it ignores the obvious. And my, my point is this. We... We cannot define gender too precisely. You have to hear me in this, because some of you are, are going to demand it. You, we, we, the Bible only takes us so far, and we cannot define this gender issue of male and female too precisely. If we do, I believe we do violence to what God has revealed because of our demand to control life. Are you following me? So this first foundation is mystery, and, and you've got to hear that because I will get specific in a little while, but you've got to just have that in your background. And the second is this, that who I am is really the same for both male and female. Notice, ultimately, who I am is I am a human being made in the image of God. In other words, that this, this sameness of who I am is identical, that I am a human being made in the image of God. And that's Genesis 1 and 2, where, if you remember, we talked about this about six, seven, eight weeks ago, and and uh, remember, God created all the world, and the pinnacle of, the, of, the, of his created universe was he created first man. And, uh, and uh, he, he reveals his glory in the creation of a man, and then a woman is a completion of that creation. And it's seen as the, as the, as the climax, and that, that human beings, you and I, created by God, are made in his image. We're dim reflections of the creator God. And Psalm 8 says he has crowned us with glory and honor. He has made us kings and queens. So regardless of what anybody believes about God, it's irrelevant whether it's a person, a Hindu or Muslim or an atheist or a Christian. Every person is a treasure 
before God because they are made in his image. In other words, the Grand Canyon, someone was telling me yesterday they'd seen the Grand Canyon this, this past summer, and it was just absolutely breathtaking. I've never seen, I've seen pictures. They said it's just unexplainable, the sights of, of the beauty of that, of that place. And if you think of, again, the most majestic natural beauty, which the Bible speaks of, the, the creation declares the glory of God, that is nothing. That is so minuscule next to the glory that we see of God through human beings. Because human beings have been made in his image. And that's the greatest compliment that can be paid to you or to anybody. That's who I am. I am a, I am a person I'm a man, I'm a human being made in the image of God, and therefore I have enormous value, and I am his treasure. I've been made a king on this earth. And I'm a woman, I've been made a queen on this earth to, to rule. And when we speak of glory, that word glory is another mysterious word. That word glory refers to heavy. It's like I have glory in me, I'm heavy, and, 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 and glory gives you awe. Glory is, is get, it comes with, uh, glory is a sense of like gratitude, like wow. And, and so before a human being, when you look at other people, that there's a sense of wow, this, the, the depth and complexity of this human being made in the image of God, whom God has breathed life into, is, is, has got a touch of the glory of God in them. This person's a king or a queen. They may not be living like one. They may have been abused and beat up, but that's who they are, and that's who I am. And, 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 and I say, wow. And so when I look in the mirror in the morning, I don't know how you look this morning, if your response was not, wow, you've not grasped this foundational principle, the fact of, do you know something? You are made in the image of God. There's nothing else in all of the universe made in the image of God except for human beings. And that's a beautiful, glorious thing. And so my dignity and my value, my treasure, my self-esteem comes because God made me and he loves me. So uh, my value and sense of worth and, and treasure is not because I'm a good dad or I have some children or I'm a good nurturer or I'm a good provider though, or I have a successful career or that I serve God. These things are not the basis of my feeling good about myself. Are you following me, everybody? These are foundational truths before we go into gender. Because if you don't have this straight, you're going to be trying to make gender something that God never intended it to be. But no, I am of enormous value because I am, because God made me. That is why I am of such infinite value and such a treasure before God. Now, in Genesis 2, verse 23, look at that verse, is when Adam is lonely and the man says, I'm sorry, in verse 22, remember Adam, no suitable helper was found, and so God calls him to fall into a deep sleep, and, and so God takes, verse 21, one of the man's ribs and closes up the place with flesh. Then, he, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And uh, so the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, or she shall be called woman, for he was taken out of man. Now, Adam calls her, verse 23, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. Now, the word for Adam in Hebrew is the word ish. Now, please, you Jewish people who speak Hebrew, forgive me, okay? It's the word ish. That's the word for man. He calls her isha. So, basically, he gives her the ish, but he adds a ah. So, Adam's called ish. He says, but this person, this woman, is so similar to me, but yet she's different. 
I'm going to call her not Ish, which is my name. I'm going to call her Isha, which is woman. You know, and uh, so in other words, he's saying is that she is like me, Adam was saying. She is very similar to me. She also is this human being. She's Ish, but she's, she's not really the same as me. She's, she is the same, but she's different. She's Isha. Got it? And so we are different. Okay, I've got to say this. We are different. And, and uh, uh, we don't buy into the fact of th- there is only one sex. No, there are two sexes. There is male God made and, and, and female. And he says that each reflect something of, his, of who he is. And to get a complete picture of God, you need both male and female involved in that. And so, but um, there's a mystery around gender. I want to go back to that. But we are different. And today I'm not going to argue the sameness. I'm arguing the differences. And, and our culture now, our culture is, uh, there's a move in our culture, and, 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 uh, and that is to end all distinctions based on sex. And that is a move, it's a, it's a cr- tremendous wave moving in our culture. It's moving for, for really 30, 40 years. And some of it is good. Not all of it is bad. I'm not saying that. But, but uh, the point is that there is differences between men and women. And, and Adam acknowledged it right here, that she's so similar to me, yes, but she is different. That's why I'm Ish, and she's Isha. I'm man, and she's woman. So that's what I want to focus on today, is, is really the differences. Now, we have pictures in Scripture of manhood and womanhood, and I'm going to really give us two of them today, of what biblical manhood is, and then what biblical womanhood is. And, uh, and so I want to go to begin with Psalm 45. All right, so let's go to Psalm 45. And this is really critical to understanding intimacy in marriage. And, uh, and it will free, if you as men who are married here will get tied into that, it will serve you to set your wife free. And for you women, it will be whom God called you to be. It will set your husband free. And you who are singles here, as you relate to folks of the opposite sex, if you will be who God called you to be, it will free up your relationships with folks of the opposite sex. And enable you to enter into healthy relationships with them. But it's important that biblically we get a grasp on, on who am I as a, as a man and who am I as a woman. Now, again, I, I'm away from the differences. I'm going into some of the distinctions here, all right? I'm going to simply call the man, all right, for, for an image, because pictures are helpful. A man is really to be like a warrior poet. Okay? So I want you to keep that image in your mind. Warrior poet. All right, now go to Psalm 45. And, and here is a, it's a wedding song. And it's also a messianic psalm, but, but it really is a wedding song written uh, for a wedding. And it's a royal wedding. You're going to see in a moment that the, the husband is going to come riding on a horse like a warrior. And um, let's begin at verse uh, 2. Okay? You are the most excellent of men. Your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously. So you got a picture of a horse. In behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of strings make you glad. I'm going to stop there just for the, our, our theme here this morning. So here, here's, the, here's the image. Is, is the man in this wedding, he's a warrior. He is riding on his horse, and he is, he is not afraid to go into conflict. 
He is engaging the warfare and the chaos of life. He is on his horse, and you'll notice he has got, on his right hand, he is displaying awesome deeds. And these are deeds of battle and victory. And in those days, uh, it was literally against the enemies of Israel that surrounded Israel, and they would be attacked physically. And, and, but the image is, is that the man was a warrior, and uh, he was fighting. And it's interesting because his weapons, the only things mentioned here are, he's got these things, lips are mentioned, and hands. But to his speech, it's beautiful in verse 2, your lips are as anointed with grace, that his speech is, is gracious, and it's kind, and it's gentle, but his lips speak life-giving words. He's not critical, he's not nasty, he's not a complainer, his lips speak words of life, and he's a warrior. Remember the power of the word over people's lives as the power of life and death? It can destroy a person. You can, you can cut a pe- person to shreds with your words, or you can build them up and move them on to God's glory in their life. But this, a warrior man, he, his lips, what flows out of his lips are words that build, that fight on behalf of, of his family, on behalf of those around him. And he, he's, remember, he's subduing the earth. He's cutting a path through a virgin forest. That's what the word subdue the earth means. He is, he is, he is not passive. He is a warrior, and he is cutting a path through a forest against the battles of life that come against him and his family, okay? And he is cutting that path through a forest and cultivating uh, the lands. And, and uh, you know, so that's why if you look at a, a man getting married in a tuxedo, that tuxedo is really can be seen as a battle uniform. He is dressing up to be a warrior. I <laughs> But the battle that he is fighting is not literally against enemies invading. It's, 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 it's a spiritual battle with the enormous influences of the culture and the world around us, of the world of flesh and the devil that want to come in and destroy him and his family. And he, and he, has, a, has, a sword of the, he has a sword, which is the sword of the Spirit. He's got, the, he's got prayer. He's got fasting. He's got, he's got um, faith. And he is warring on behalf of those around him. Now, that's interesting because most men marry a mom, and we like to marry a mom, and uh, tend to be very passive when it comes to home life, very passive when it comes to warring for their marriage, and uh, very passive when it comes to warring for raising children as well. And, and uh, you know, I, I, was, I went, to, we went to Burger King last week, and uh, we drove to a certain Burger King because it was 99 cents for kids' meals. And I was tired. I, I'd been up since 6 in the morning. I'd gone to our prayer meeting on Wednesday morning. It was, it was uh, you know, it was 5, 5.30. I was tired. And I got home, and I picked up my family, went to Burger King. And we're online, and the guy's charging us for three kids to be able to fill full price. And I'm just tired. I'm like, and so my wife says, yeah, you know, but it says out in the big sign in the front, 99 cents, you know, for kids meal. But they, did, they had it covered where it says, if you buy, you know, you know, the big whopper, all the other stuff, you know, and and so I'm just like, you know, let's just pay it. I'm just tired. My wife's like, what are you kidding? You know what that's going to be? It's an extra six, seven dollars. And so I'm like, so she goes, call the manager. I'm like, oh, I'm just, I just, I'm just hungry. I, I just want to sit down, you know. And, and so Jerry, you know, she's not being nasty. She goes, I'm not being nasty. I just want to, I just, why should we pay? It's on the sign. And she goes, hold on, I'm going to go look at the sign. So she's going out looking at the sign. The manager comes out. And I'm just, you know, I'm just sitting there, you know, and the manager says, you're right, lady, we can't see the sign, you know, but hey, you know, all right, we'll give it to you, you know, and so, and, 
So I walked to my seat like this, you know, and I just, you know, I mean, there's no warrior in me. I just, I just wanted my shake and my fries. I wasn't warring for anything. But, you know, I'm talking, a man is to be a warrior in, in the relationship where we war that the man takes initiative for greater intimacy. That he's warring that our relationship is going to be all that God intends. And that I'm not satisfied the level we're at right now, and I'm going to fight that we get to greater depths of intimacy, that we learn to communicate better, that our sexual intimacy is what God intends it to be. I will war and enter into the scariness of that, the fearfulness of that. I won't just wait for you to do it, which is generally the common theme. You know, for parenting, you know, for most men, let's face it, most men it's like, honey, you're in charge of parenting, I'm helping you. That is not a warrior. A warrior takes his place and says, honey, we are raising these kids together. Okay, and let's think through what's our mission as a family, where are we going, how are we going to get there, but, but let's, we're, I'm a warrior too. I'm not just hanging out in the background here, and, but it's, it's warring, is, is, it's looking at my wife and say, you know, just like hopefully she's doing to me, but I'm looking at her and saying, what does she need? You know, in my case, my wife's home with four kids and, and the, the, the strain of that, and I'm not there, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not there as much as she is, and, and the drain of that, and looking at battling to say, I know in my case, battling is to look and say, my wife needs solitude. My wife needs to get alone to be with God, to be the person she's called by God to be. And if I don't fight for that, she can't get it. Because the expectation in the culture is, hey, it's your problem. But a warrior says, I'm going to actually think about somebody more than myself. And I'm going to war the fact that she has time to be the person God's called her to be as well. And it's not just about me. But it, it, it's, it's, it's serving God. Um, you know, some, it's, it's, I'm going I'm to war in my service of God. I'm not just going to let her serve God. And I'm going to kind of follow along, which many men do that too even passive in the Christian life. Outside of the workplace, for many men, that's it. It's total passivity, even in church, even in serving God. I'm just saying, where my wife wants to go, I'll just kind of flow along with her, and, you know. And there's no, it's really this passivity in that. There's not a warrior of the fact that no, I'm called to war and use my gifts and bring whom God's called me to bear on the kingdom of God, and I'm going to do that. And hopefully do it together, but uh, I'm a warrior and uh, not simply a potato couch guy, you know, watching the games. Passive. All right. Now, the second theme on this, and I want you to go to Genesis 2 again. Because a man's not just a warrior, he's also a poet. Now, those of you who are, who are artists and have, like music like myself, and I love music, and you'll really appreciate this, but uh, as you know, you read books, and I, you know, it's so funny, I read, I read so much for this message, I was, it was exhausting, you know, so many studies. You can, you can find a study to prove anything, you know, it's a sociological, psychological, biological, hormonal, women's hips, women's forearms, it was unbelievable what I read, I, I was exhausted. But men are, are, are called not just to be a warrior, but to be a poet. And I'm getting this, not because I'm making this word up. It's because in, in verse 23, when Adam sees Eve, he sings over her. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but one-third of the Bible is poetry. I'm sorry, one-third of the Old Testament is poetry. The, the prophets, all the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, large portions of, of even, even the history where the songs, these are, it's all poetry. And that's why to read it properly, you understand a little bit about poetry. But, but the Bible is a very poetic book. Now, this is the first poem in the Bible. And, 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 and when Adam sees Eve and he says, this man says, this is now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of a man. That is, you wait, it's in brackets in most of your Bibles. It's like, it's like indented there. Because the, 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 the editor is trying to show you that this is a poem. This is not like a narrative that's just talking about the story. And he basically sees her and he sings. He sings over her. 
and he basically recites poetry over her. I mean, what a beautiful picture of, of true manhood. I mean, he's, he's not just a warrior. I mean, he's a poet, and he just sings over Eve as God brings her to him. And, and uh, uh, I mean, what a, what a tenderness there. You know, what, what a cherishing there. And, and uh, you know, but the, the, that's why the, men are called by God to create romance, to, to create poetry in the marriage. So a man is, 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 is created to, to sing from his soul over, over his spouse. Man, that's, you were created for that. And, and uh, th- again, the whole word of cherishing, you know, what does that mean to, to be a poet over your wife? I'm not, again, I'm not fully sure all the application of it, but I, I think it means minimally it's, it's basking in your spouse. It's cherishing uh, who she is. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, this is a book called The Mystery of Marriage, which is a wonderful book by Michael Mason, I recommend. The kind of book you just read aloud together as a couple. And, and you know, and I just, with some, just read it aloud at night to my wife, you know, and just read it over her. It's kind of the beauty of marriage, you know. And it's just like, and she's just like singing over me, Pete. It's just like you're just, you know, and it's just, it's just, uh, just like food for my soul. And, and, uh, and I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily hours of work, and there's a place for that in preparing and poetry and all that and romance, but, but I'm talking about entering into the feelings of your spouse where she feels cherished, where it's like, wow, somebody's singing over me. And I don't think many men actually get to that depth either. Most men are just living life and moving through. My wife's there to help me get through it. She's my helpmate, and, uh, you know, but I'm not really cherishing or thinking of what does it mean to sing over her or enter into the depth of what she's walking through. What is she really feeling? And it's very hard to be busy and preoccupied and be a poet. I'm not sure it's possible. And some of our lives are so busy as men, and even single men, that to even sing over anybody is just not really possible. And I think it takes some solitude, and it takes some individuality to be a poet. And uh, so, you know, just a little side note, this whole thing of headship, which I cannot go into at this point, but, you know, man is the head of the home, is Christ the head of the church. And uh, the first thing that Paul says about headship is that he is the one, ultimately, that is to die for his wife first. Okay, if there's any application of Ephesians 5, there's many. In other words, to be the head is to be called by God to be the first one to sacrifice and to die on behalf of your spouse. Now, now Jesus suffered and died, and he, the Bible says he washed the church, he washes his church with his blood and his word to enhance the church's beauty. That's what he does. And he says in the same way, so a man is to suffer and die for his wife as a warrior poet, that her beauty might come forth. That's why, you know, the headship, you know, is not a dictatorship or superiority. It's used like that all the time because Jesus is called, God the Father is called the head of Jesus the Son. Now, God the Father is not superior to God the Son by any means, but, but it's, his, it's his submission. He looks, Jesus looks to the Father as the head. And, uh, but the call is for mutual submission in Scripture, and it's yielding my will to another. And, you know, it's very hard. When if you, you will not hear many men struggling with, what does it mean for me to submit to my wife? You just won't hear that. But yet, verse 21 of, of Ephesians 5 is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ before it goes into the whole headship thing. But you will rarely, rarely hear a married man say, what does it mean for me to submit to my wife? Because we don't even want to, the thought of dying to myself or my needs or my wants for her is just so far from my understanding of headship. And what happens in many marriages is, is you have two independent people, each going their own way. They're kind of like ships passing in the night. 
uh, it's safe that way. Or what happens is one person of the two dominates in such a way that there's no space in the marriage for two people. There's really only space for one. And so one person gets crushed and has to be a non-person to survive in the marriage. That's very common in marriage. It happens all the time. Either it could be the man dominating or the woman dominating. But really, what, what the warrior poet, I'm going to lay down my life as the head. I'm going to die first. I'm going to beat her to the cross for her glory to be all that God's called her to be. And so I'm going to sacrifice my will, my loyalties, uh, my friends, whatever it is, so that my partner can also shape and create as God's called her to. All right. I'm sorry, guys. Now it's time for the woman, all right? But that's, that's it. It's a warrior poet. It's a beautiful image of what does it mean for you to be a man? What does it mean for me to be a man? Now, for the woman, go to Proverbs 31. I'm going to call the woman warrior savior. Okay? So, woman, I'm going to call simply warrior savior. And again, I'm hoping that these pictures will stay in your mind. In fact, I want to encourage you to take notes somewhere to, so you can think about these things and wrestle with it. And again, I, I, I want to go back. There is mystery in this. But uh, Proverbs 31 is that famous passage. In fact, I was very embarrassed to say to my wife, no, I, I've never really done a thorough study on this passage. He says, you know, there's probably very few Christian women who have not studied this passage inside out. Because in a desire to be, um, you know, the woman God's called them to be. And uh, but anyway, in Proverbs 31, it, it ends with, with a wife of, a, of an ancient woman from Palestine. She comes from a pretty well-off family. But this, this, this is also a poem, but uh, it's a very revolutionary poem because this woman is so independent and she's so aggressive that in light of that culture, it's, in, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking for our biblical teaching, that a lot of what's thrown around the church today, it's shocking how aggressive this woman is. That's why my first call for a woman here, she also is a warrior. And it's found here in, in uh, uh, Proverbs 31, beginning at verse 10. She also plunders her world. She's dynamic and she's aggressive. Verse 10, a wife of noble character who can find. Underline that word noble. That word is the word that is used for war heroes. Uh, you've heard of David's mighty men? Strong, mighty, military men of valor. That's the same word there for noble. A wife of noble character, a warring, valiant, strong wife who can find. The image is the same thing as we'll read in just a few moments. The image is that she's battling in daily life, and she, like the man, is pushing back the chaos, the darkness, and bringing order and shaping and creating the world. She, oh, oh we carried away. All right, let me go. And she returns victorious. Let's read it together. Verse um, 13. She selects wool and flax. They were, they were the clothing for both summer and winter. And works with eager hands. If you'll notice in verse 24, uh, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. So she's in business and uh, she's making garments and she's selling them uh, here. So she supplies the needs of her family, but she's also in the clothing business. And then in verse uh, 14, she is like, mer like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark, and she provides food for her family 
and portions for her servants' goods, the girls. The, 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 the commentaries will make a point here that, that she's a very large household, and she's organizing the task of all the laborers. She's managing this, in a sense, this, this business of her home, which is she's a wealthy woman here, and she's got all these laborers to whom she's got a portion of food and duties for the day, but she's, she's managing this large operation here. And uh, uh, she gets, she, verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. She's in real estate. She considers, that word considers is the, is the word for bartering. She's negotiating. You want this much, I'm going to give you this much. And if any of you have been to the Mideast, you've seen them negotiate with prices. And, and she's haggling over prices. So she considers a field and she buys it. Now check this out. Out of her earnings, now she earns a profit. And so in this business, now she plants a vineyard. And so now she's expanding the entire economic base for her family. And she sets about her work vigorously, again, she, she's vigorously working. Her arms are strong for her tasks. And, and I, I want to stop here for a second. You've got to hear this. Why I'm calling her a warrior, too, is because there's great strength in Proverbs 31 for the woman. She also is a warrior. And, um, uh, it, but, but there's a difference here in that in verse 20, if you go down, her, her warrior-ness seems to have a special thrust on tenderness. Now, the man's got some tenderness in his warring, but you'll notice in this passage and others on women that, that for example, in verse 22, she, she, she um, I'm sorry, verse 20, 20, she opens her arms to the, to the poor and extends her hands to the needy, and you, and you see kind of a tenderness in her, in her warring and even her wealth, and in verse 21, she wars for her families. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She's thinking ahead. She's, she's planning. And, and, and the modern application of this woman is this woman would be a, a, a corporate executive, a, a lawyer, would, uh, would be involved in commercial economic activity, and, and, but yet she's not single-mindedly pursuing her goals. She's, she's caring for her family. She's tender there. She's thinking of her husband. She's thinking of his future. And, 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 and the summation, verse 30, is she loves God. You know? She understands that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But unlike the culture which exalts youth and beauty, that, that she understands that a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And this is a woman who loves God and who fears God above all else. And, and, uh, and so this is not a woman who is sickly codependent and passive. This is a woman who has choices in her life. And this is a woman who is also a warrior. And um, now, go with me to Genesis 1.28, because I need to kind of expand on what I just said to you, all right? I want you to hear this, because many women, because it's easy, because it's fun to be passive and have somebody else be your father the rest of your life and not have to war. Who wants to go out and war in life? I'd rather just, you know, kind of have another daddy who would take care of me the rest of my life. I don't have to make decisions. I just follow him because I'm his helpmate. And that's my calling now. And so I don't have to war for anything. I'll just float back. And many, he's the king and I'm the queen, you know, and and I go where he goes. And, and, and the verse that is used for this is, is Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where it says that the Lord God uh, said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that's the word for helper is where, you know, okay, what does it mean a woman's a helper? And she's my helpmate. Generally, what that means for most men and most women as well, and have been raised in, in church environments, is basically, I'm his servant. That... I'm his servant. Basically, my role in life is to serve him. 
Now, yes, the way is to serve you, and you're to serve him in that sense of mutual servanthood, yes, but this verse is generally taken that I'm basically the one who serves him so he can accomplish what God's called him to accomplish in his life. And I, I believed it. In fact, I kind of liked it. You know, I mean, I, you know, God's called me to this, and my wife helps me, and, you know, that's the way it works. And, and uh, you know, she's here to help fulfill me. And it really sounded very good to me. Uh, she's behind the scenes. She's the secretary. She's the administrator. She's the one who picks up the laundry. Um, and I like it. He's, I need a helper so I can live my life out and create and shape. And what I'm saying to you is that that, that word helper now is the literal word for, is the word used, when it's used in the Old Testament, I encourage you to get a concordance out and look it up. Almost every time this word helper is used, it is used in reference to God, to God saving his people from trouble. Now, look it up. I'm not making this up. Look up every reference to helper in the Old Testament, and it almost always, some would argue it always, refers to God helping out his people who are in trouble. So, for example, here's some of the verses, you know, uh, you know, O Israel, trust in the Lord, they're in trouble, he is your help. Or it says, you are against me, God says, your helper God, that's the word for helper. Or I lift my eyes to the hill, Psalm 121, where does my help come from? Psalm 121, my help comes from the Lord. And we love that psalm. And in other words, that this is why a woman's not just a warrior, a woman is a savior. Whoa, all right. She's a savior. Oh, boy. Because the images of God our Savior in the Old Testament, in tenderness and mercy, rescuing his people. Now, so in other words, my wife is my savior, my rescuer. That sounds very much like I'm codepending very much on her. And, and uh, in fact, it's very interesting because this whole codependence thing, you know, and, and uh, you know, women get codependent on men. The statistics are that, like, it's nine to one of women who are codependent versus men. And, uh, but remember, all this codependence thing, all truth, all perversion has truth in it. So there is something about this dependency thing that's God, but it gets perverted and very sick, and that's what we want to avoid. But there's a God created in such a way that, that I do depend on my wife in a healthy way to save me and to rescue me. So, so again, I'm not talking about that she's enabling me to be neurotic, which I can be at times, nor is it that she is controlling me in my life, that's not what this helper is doing, controlling you to make sure you're on the right track, just like God. No, it's not that either, you know. It's not, in, it's not in, in my life, she's taking away the pain of my life, so she's always rescuing me. Let me, let me fix it so you don't have pain, so you don't suffer consequences. That's not it either, because it's not the way our Savior God deals with us. He lets us experience pain, nor is it contempt, which happens many times as a wife gets close to a husband and sees his weaknesses and inadequacies, it ends up becoming contempt. And, uh, you know, I think of Tom and Pam, a fictitious names. They're at the mall with their six-year-old child, and Tom's going to go to the sports shop, and Pam's going to go to uh, buy some shoes with the baby. And, and so they agree to meet in a half an hour, 15 minutes before the movie begins, 101 Dalmatians, okay? And so they agree to meet in front of the movie theater, it gets to the 15 minutes before the movie theater. Tom is nowhere to be found. Pam is there waiting with her six-year-old child. And she says to the kid, 
if there's a way for your father to screw something up, he will. And Tom shows up five minutes before the movie's to begin, and uh, he says, oh, I ran into a friend. Sorry I'm late. And she lashes out and says, that's okay. It gave us a chance to discuss your amazing ability to screw up every single plan we make. You are so thoughtless and self-centered. Okay, that is contempt. Okay, that is not being a savior. Amen, everybody? All right, now, what does this look like? Okay, we are talking about where a friend told me this story. He was on a ski slope. Again, I've never skied. But his child was not making the moves he would have liked. And he, was a, and he had yelled at the child. He was about to ream his child out. And he's told about how his wife very gently intervened and said, Dan, you jerk. Don't do it. And he saved her husband from damaging or warring in an unhealthy way. And she really was very merciful, but with some strength, she stepped in and saved him. You know, it's to step in at times as a woman into your husband's life to help him make some right choices. That is saving. Okay? It's stepping in. It's not controlling. It's not enabling, but it's having the courage to confront sometimes. Listen, I, I, I think some of the most critical points in my spiritual growth, when my wife came to me and says, Pete, something has got to change. And that was saving my life. I hated her for it. I did. But she said to me very nicely and very firmly, something has to change. But she did it because she loved me. She, said, she rescued me. But many women are so into being a helpmate and misunderstanding what that means that they're very dishonest. And so what happens, they don't save anybody. And they're really not serving their husbands. They're really hurting them in the way God intended. Because you too, as a woman, were created to be a warrior and a savior. And so for some women, it, it, means, it does mean giving up some of yourself and being incredibly patient with your husband who's very slow to listen and to be patient, to give up parts of yourself that you'd love to see flourish, but you know they can't right now because he is too obtuse to listen. And so you, you accept the fact that he's take, it's going to take him a while and so I, I know there are women who save that way, and it's such a beautiful thing to serve and love. And maybe they're not everything they would probably like, but they're patiently bringing those words as appropriate because he's a separate individual too that she respects, but trying to bring saving help into his life. Are you following me, everybody? There's a movie out that I read a, a book review of it in Christianity Today, Books and Culture, and the movie is called The First Wives Club. Maybe some of you saw it, they, and it, it touched the American nerve, and, and they say it grossed $100 million its first year. But the review was fascinating, written from a, a believer, and it's about three women who were married who all got divorced. And uh, it talks about in their, prior to the divorce, they were all kind of non-persons, and they had no identity. You know, they just kind of were like, you know, mushy there, and each one was a different story. But, but when, after they got divorced, a number of years passed, uh, they changed. And they each became, in a sense, warriors. And they became their own persons. And in fact, a pastor was quoted in this article by saying, it's sad to say, but many women after a divorce become healthier women. Marriage that allow women to thrive and grow as people. And uh, that was the recommendation that they don't have to get a divorce to grow because they're so smothering. It was a tremendous article. So I'll close with this. 
if you can look at it this way, men are, are warriors and poets, right? So men are strong, but there's a, they're, 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 they're tenderly strong. Follow this. Men are strong, but they're tenderly strong. That's why a dictator, a dominant, it's, it's very sick, it's very perverse. A man is tenderly strong, but a woman is strongly tender. And they're so close, but they're different. And I wish I, I couldn't find an illustration. There's only a slight difference, but that slight is huge. So a man is, is, is tenderly strong, and a woman as a warrior savior is to be strongly tender. But for a woman who's tender without any strength, uh, really is also grotesque. She's also just taking away pain. She's an absorbing machine, and she's not leading people to Jesus either. To lead people to Jesus, you need to be strongly tender. And for a man to lead people to Jesus, you need to be tenderly strong. They both go together. And so that's why if a man is 90% strength and no tenderness, it's, it's grotesque. And for a woman to be 90% tender, it's really not very good either. All right, let me close with this. Um, I know that like most of the men here, I'll speak to the men, due to family influences, uh, you're probably not a warrior poet. And uh, again, you know, I, I'm just walking in this myself and growing in this. And, and it takes the Holy Spirit and the life of God to grow out of my family influences, the cultural influences, the sin, rebellion issues, the pravity issues, and grow and break out and really be a warrior poet. Uh, and uh, then for women to get out of your place of complacency or passivity or contempt or perverse strength that you may bring into the marriage and be a warrior savior as Jesus also is going to require a breaking out by the Spirit of God. And so uh, I'm going to ask us all to stand.